Welcome to the Words That Minister Grace podcast. In this podcast, we read excerpts from books that the host finds edifying. Expect to hear from authors such as Matthew Henry, John Calvin, and J.C. Ryle. We take our name from Ephesians 4.29, where Paul exhorts us that our speech should build up each other, or as the King James says, minister grace. I am your host, the fake King Hesse. In this episode, we continue our reading of Calvin's Institutes Book 2, Chapter 8. We'll be reading Section 5 through 7. 5. The Lord, in delivering a perfect rule of righteousness, has reduced it in all its parts to his mere will, and in this way has shown that there is nothing more acceptable to him than obedience. There is the more necessity for attending to this, because the human mind in its wantonness, is ever and anon eventing different modes of worship as a means of gaining his favor. This irreligious affections of religion being innate in the human mind has betrayed itself in every age, and is still doing so. Men always longing to devise some method of procuring righteousness without any sanction from the word of God. Hence, in these observations which are generally regarded as good works, the precepts of the law occupy a narrow space, almost the whole being usurped by this endless host of human inventions. But was not this the very license which Moses meant to curb, when, after the promulgation of the law, he thus addressed the people, Observe and hear all these words which I command thee, that it may go well with thee, and with thy children after thee forever, when thou does that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord thy God. What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Deuteronomy 12, 28-32 Previously, after asking, What nation is there so great, that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? He had added, Only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest thy depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. Deuteronomy 4, 8, 9. God, foreseeing that the Israelites would not rest, but after receiving the law, would, unless sternly prohibited, give birth to new kinds of righteousness, declares that the law comprehended a perfect righteousness. This ought to have been a most powerful restraint, and yet they desisted not from the presumptuous course so strongly prohibited. How do we act? We are certainly under the same obligation as they were, for there cannot be a doubt that the claim of absolute perfection, which God made for his law, is perpetually in force. Not contented with it, however, we labor prodigiously in feigning and coining an endless variety of good works, one after another. The best cure for this vice would be a constant and deep-seated conviction that the law was given from heaven to teach us a perfect righteousness, that the only righteousness so taught is that which the divine will expressly enjoins, and that it is, therefore, vain to attempt by new forms of worship to gain the favor of God, whose true worship consists in obedience alone, or rather, that to go a-wandering after good works which are not prescribed by the law of God 
is an intolerable violation of true and divine righteousness. Most truly does Augustine say in one place that the obedience which is rendered to God is the parent and guardian, and another that it is the source of all the virtues. 6. After we shall have expanded the divine law, which has been previously said of its office and use, will be understood more easily, and with greater benefit. But before we proceed to the consideration of each separate commandment, it will be proper to take a general survey of the whole. At the onset, it was proved that in the law human life is instructed not merely in outward decency, but in inward spiritual righteousness. Though none can deny this, yet very few duly attend to it, because they do not consider the lawgiver, by whose character that of the law must also be determined. Should a king issue an edict prohibiting murder, adultery, theft, the penalty, I admit, will not be incurred by the man who has only felt a longing in his mind after these vices, but has not actually committed them. The reason is that a human lawgiver does not extend his care beyond outward order, and, therefore, his injunctions are not violated without outward acts. But God, whose eye nothing escapes, and who regards not the outward appearances so much as purity of heart, under the prohibition of murder, idolatry, and theft includes wrath, hatred, lust, covetousness, and all other things of a similar nature. Being a spiritual lawgiver, he speaks to the soul, not less than the body. The murder which the soul commits is wrath and hatred, the theft, covetousness and avarice, and the adultery, lust. It may be alleged that human laws have respect to intentions and wishes, and not fortuitous events. I admit this, but then these must manifest themselves eternally. They consider the animus with which the act was done, but do not scrutinize the secret thoughts. Accordingly, their demand is satisfied when the hand merely refrains from transgression. On the contrary, the law of heaven being enacted for our minds, the first thing necessarily to a due observance of the law is to put them under restraint. But the generality of men, even while they are most anxious to conceal their disregard of the law, only frame from their hands and feet and other parts of their body to some kind of observance. But, in the meanwhile, keep their heart utterly estranged from everything like obedience. They think it enough to have carefully concealed from men what they are doing in the sight of God. Hearing the commandments, Thou shalt not kill, Thou shalt not commit adultery, Thou shalt not steal, they do not unsheathe their swords for slaughter, nor defile their bodies with harlots, nor put forth their hands to other men's goods. So far well, but with their whole soul they breathe out slaughter, boil with lust, cast a greedy eye at their neighbor's property, and in wish devour it. Here the principal thing which the law requires is wanting. Whence then this gross stupidity, but just because they lose sight of the lawgiver, and form a idea of righteousness in accordance with their own disposition? Against this Paul strenuously protests when he declares that the law is spiritual, Romans 7.14, intimating that it not only demands the homage of the soul and mind and will, but requires an angelic purity which, purified from all filthiness of the flesh, savors 
only of the Spirit. 7. In saying that this is the meaning of the law, we are not introducing a new interpretation of our own. We are following Christ, the best interpreter of the law. Matthew 5, 44. The Pharisees, having instilled into the people the erroneous idea that the law was fulfilled by everyone who did not in external act do anything against the law, he pronounces this a most dangerous delusion, and declares that an immodest look is adultery, and that hatred of a brother is murder. Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever by whispering or murmuring gives an indication of being offended shall be in danger of the council. Whosoever by reproaches and evil speaking gives way to open anger shall be in danger of hellfire. Those who have not perceived this have pretended that Christ was only a second Moses, the giver of an evangelical, to supply the deficiency of the Mosaic law. Hence the common axiom as to the perfection of the evangelical law and its great superiority to that of Moses. This idea is in many ways most pernicious, for it will appear from Moses himself, when we come to give a summary of his precepts, that great indignity is thus done to the divine law. It certainly insinuates that the holiness of the fathers under the law was little else than hypocrisy, and leads us away from that one unwavering rule of righteousness. It is very easy, however, to confute this error, which proceeds on the supposition that Christ added to the law, whereas he only restored it to its integrity by maintaining and purifying it when obscured by the falsehood and defiled by the leaven of the Pharisees. Thanks for listening. In the show notes, you can find contact information and a link to the text from today. Remember to heed Paul when he says in Ephesians 4.29 to Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers.